This episode contains graphic descriptions of medical afflictions and treatments that some people may find disturbing. We advise caution for listeners under 13. The year was 1950. In the town of Bethesda, Maryland, five police officers were called to a motel due to a guest causing a disturbance. When they arrived, the aggressor's brother, David, pleaded with the officers not to arrest him. His brother didn't mean any harm. He had a mental health condition. Police were questioning the suspect when a man with a briefcase arrived at the scene. His name was Dr. Walter Jackson Freeman II, and he'd helped David's brother before. Dr. Freeman asked David if he'd like him to treat his brother then and there. It would certainly be better than a trip downtown in handcuffs. David agreed, and Freeman turned to the officers. He asked for their help in restraining the patient. Freeman opened up his briefcase and took out an electroshock machine. He wrapped the electrodes around the patient's head and zapped him unconscious. Next, Freeman took a mallet and an ice pick-shaped instrument from his bag. He placed the tool in the corner of the man's eye and with one flick of the wrist, hammered the pick into his patient's brain. Freeman gave the spike a hard twist, then repeated the process in the other eye. David and the officers watched in shock as Freeman wiped a few drops of blood from the man's cheek. Then, the doctor casually packed his tools. He told David not to worry about the cost of the procedure. Insurance would cover his brother's lobotomy. When our bodies fail, we trust doctors to diagnose the problem. But medicine isn't always an exact science. Sometimes it's a guessing game with life or death stakes. This is Medical Mysteries, a ParCast original. I'm Molly. And I'm Richard. Every Tuesday, we'll look at the strangest real-life medical cases in history and the experts who raced against the clock to solve them. As we follow these high-intensity stories, we'll explore medical research that might solve the puzzle. You can find episodes of Medical Mysteries and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. To stream Medical Mysteries for free on Spotify, just open the app and type Medical Mysteries in the search bar. This is our second episode on the rise and fall of lobotomy, a surgical treatment thought to cure mental health conditions. Last week, we discussed Gottlieb Burkhardt's initial attempts at the procedure and how Dr. Antonio Egas Moniz popularized the invention. Today, we'll see how Dr. Walter J. Freeman II carried on that legacy with his invention, the ice pick lobotomy. We'll also investigate why the procedure remained popular even after more humane treatments emerged. We have all that and more coming up. Stay with us. There's a new class of blockbuster drugs. Drugs like Ozempic. They're changing bodies. And all of a sudden, just the weight starts falling off. Fortunes. It just got too expensive. They're just bank breakers and industries. There was a lot of excitement. There was a lot of skepticism. The impact of these drugs from business to health is just beginning. From the journal, Trillion Dollar Shot. Find it in the journal feed wherever you get your podcasts. 
1935, Portuguese neurologist Antonio Egas Moniz introduced the prefrontal lobotomy to the world. This surgical procedure was believed to be a cure-all for mental health conditions like schizophrenia and bipolar disorder. Moniz's procedure even won him the Nobel Prize in Medicine in 1949. Moniz believed he could treat these conditions by severing abnormal connections in two parts of the brain, the thalamus, or the emotional center, and the prefrontal cortex, the seat of behavior, speech, and cognition. A hungry American neurologist named Walter Jackson Freeman II was one of Moniz's earliest supporters. In 1935, he was head of the neurology department at George Washington University in Washington, D.C. Freeman was favored by his students for being a great showman. He understood the importance of keeping an audience engaged. He once said to a colleague, what the teacher had to say does not have to be important. Indeed, did not even have to be true, but it had to be interesting. Freeman often used live patients to illustrate concepts rather than textbook diagrams or preserved specimens. On one occasion, he demonstrated the infantile behavior of dementia patients by bottle-feeding an elderly woman. His teaching style was so famously entertaining, students brought dates to his lectures. Professionally, Freeman lived in the shadow of his grandfather, Dr. William Williams Keene, Jr., Dr. Keene was the United States' first brain surgeon and one of the first in the world to successfully remove a brain tumor. Freeman knew he had big shoes to fill, but for the first part of his career, he toiled in near obscurity until he read Moniz's paper on the lobotomy in 1936. Freeman was inspired to duplicate Moniz's former success. The lobotomy was the uncharted frontier of American medicine, if Freeman could leave his mark on the field, perhaps he'd create a legacy that rivaled his grandfather's. First, he needed a partner. Freeman was a neurologist, which meant he could diagnose and recommend treatments for the brain and nervous system. But legally, he was disallowed from performing surgery after his final patient died on the operating table. He needed the help of a neurosurgeon to operate on patients, and he found that partner in Dr. James W. Watts. Watts was Freeman's polar opposite. He was serious and by the book. He believed maintaining a sterile environment was a crucial part of surgery. If a nurse dared to sneeze in the operating room, Watts would immediately have them ejected. Freeman, on the other hand, scoffed at rules and conformity. He skirted operating room regulations and was never worried about sterile technique. Nevertheless, Watts was attracted to the idea of making history, and he eagerly joined Freeman's practice. In September of 1936, the duo performed the United States' first ever lobotomy. Their patient was a 63-year-old woman named Alice Hammett. Alice came to Freeman with anxiety, insomnia, and depression. Another doctor may have committed her to an asylum, but to Freeman and Watts, Alice was the perfect candidate. Alice agreed to the operation, but the night before, she found out she'd have to shave her head and revoked her consent. Freeman wasn't about to lose his first patient over this. 
So he lied to Alice and assured her they would leave her hair intact. He felt her vanity was far less important than her mental health. Alice fell for Freeman's white lie. The following morning, she was sedated, shaved, and taken into the operating room. Freeman began by instructing Watts to drill burr holes into Alice's skull. They used a leucotome to slice her brain tissue and destroy the connection between her prefrontal cortex and her thalamus. Then they stitched Alice up and took her to recovery. When Alice woke, she was in great spirits. Her anxiety and depression had disappeared. Freeman asked how she felt about her shaved head, but even that didn't seem to bother her. Freeman and Watts knew they were on to something big. As they grew more seasoned, the duo altered Monisa's methods and created their own. They called it the Freeman-Watts procedure. Their technique moved the placement of burr holes higher on the skull for better access to the brain. They also made additional cuts around the thalamus for those with more severe conditions. Freeman even designed his own leucotome. His instrument resembled a dull letter opener with a curved hook, offering more precision. Unlike Moniz, Freeman preferred to keep his patients awake during the procedure. He would ask them to sing or pray so he could monitor their condition as he worked. Then, Freeman would instruct Watts to cut into the thalamus until patients were no longer able to speak. Once a patient stopped talking, Freeman considered their connections successfully severed. During operations, Freeman would often ask patients questions, things that bordered on the surreal. On one occasion, he asked a subject, Does your conscience hurt? She answered, I don't know where it is. It was down by my heart, but I can't feel it at all. These conversations were a way to measure how severely the patient's neural circuits had been damaged. Freeman called it a disorientation yardstick. It was also a way to predict how the lobotomy would affect a patient's intellect. Generally, Freeman found that his patients retained their intellectual ability after their procedure, but other neurologists disagreed. They used things like an IQ test to examine his patients after recovery. IQ tests showed that the lobotomy had a negative effect on their cognitive ability. Freeman was used to ignoring his detractors, but he knew that public opinion mattered. Oftentimes, he went directly to the press with his results before publishing in medical journals. Eventually, Freeman became a popular figure in the New York Times, and he even produced and starred in instructive videos on the Freeman-Watts procedure. The duo became the most famous lobotomists in America. Then, in 1942, Freeman discovered an untapped resource of patients, American military veterans. When World War II came to a close, the Department of Veterans Affair was overwhelmed with men returning from battle, many of whom suffered from mental health conditions. It was estimated that 1.2 million veterans were admitted to VA hospitals with neurological conditions, roughly double the amount of veterans who suffered physical injuries. Their most common affliction was post-traumatic stress disorder, or PTSD. PTSD is a neurological condition caused by stressful or traumatic events. During these experiences, 
the body releases various hormones and neurotransmitters to react to the situation. These chemicals are the body's way of improving reaction time, heightening the senses, and dulling pain sensitivity. But they also play a role in fear conditioning. During periods of prolonged stress, an individual's mind can get stuck in this fight-or-flight mode, with their body maintaining abnormally high levels of stress hormones. If this lasts longer than a month, it's considered PTSD. The symptoms of PTSD fall into three categories. Intrusive thoughts, like flashbacks and nightmares, hyperarousal, which includes impulsivity, insomnia, and anger, and deactivation, meaning numbness, avoidance, and depression. Patients with PTSD typically exhibit one symptom from each of the three categories. VA hospitals all over the country were inspired by Freeman and Watt's success. They started lobotomizing veterans with severe PTSD symptoms. By 1949, these infirmaries performed an average of 48 procedures a month. The Department of Veterans Affairs even issued an endorsement, making lobotomies even more legitimate. It seemed as though Freeman was going to rival his grandfather's legacy, after all. Meanwhile, Freeman was growing jealous of Watts' power to operate. He envied the prestige that came with neurosurgery and took great pride whenever a newspaper accidentally referred to him as a surgeon. Instead of correcting the misconception, he decided to embody it. One morning, Watts came down with a cold. There had been a scheduled surgery for that day, but instead of canceling the procedure, Freeman decided to perform it himself. Just as Freeman began slicing through the patient's skull, another surgeon walked in. Freeman calmed the doctor down enough to finish his lobotomy, but the surgeon filed a complaint with the hospital director immediately afterwards. Freeman was reprimanded, but without much consequence. He was simply told that if he wanted to operate, he'd have to apply for surgical privileges. By the 1940s, lobotomies faced larger logistical obstacles. The procedure, which cost hundreds of dollars, wasn't always covered by insurance, and would-be patients knew it was invasive and required weeks of recovery. But where others saw drawbacks, Freeman saw opportunity. Perhaps lobotomies would be more appealing if they weren't considered surgery at all. Freeman believed anyone could do the operation cheap and effectively, and he was going to show them how. Up next, Freeman tests his terrifying new methods on living subjects. Hey, Parcasters, looking for a more lighthearted listen? Then I've got the perfect podcast for you, the new Spotify original from Parcast called Incredible Feats. Hosted by comedian and podcaster Dan Cummins, Incredible Feats is a daily show spotlighting true accounts of mind-blowing physical strength, mental focus, and bizarre behavior. Join Dan every weekday as he goes behind the scenes and into the achievements of everyone from freedivers and body modifiers to ultramarathoners and moms. Incredible Feats is offbeat entertainment that's sometimes weird, sometimes wonderful, and always surprising. 
Search Incredible Feats and follow free on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. Now, back to the story. By 1945, Dr. Walter J. Freeman II and his partner, Dr. James Watts, had popularized lobotomy in the United States. But Freeman believed there was a faster and cheaper way for patients to receive the same effects, one that didn't require a certified surgeon. Freeman searched for ways to reach the thalamus without drilling into the skull. Since the thalamus is surrounded by delicate brain tissue, one wrong move could leave a patient permanently disabled, possibly even kill them. His research led him to the work of Italian psychiatrist Amaro Fiamberti. Fiamberti was the director of a psychiatric hospital in Varisi, Italy. He was also an early adopter of Moniz's procedure. In 1937, he made his own version of the lobotomy. Instead of accessing the brain through the skull, Fiamberti punctured the bone of the eye socket with a large needle. Then, he injected alcohol between the prefrontal cortex and thalamus. Fiamberti only performed 100 procedures before the outbreak of World War II. His trials were disrupted and his methods never left Italy. Until 1945, when Freeman got his hands on Fiamberti's research. Freeman believed Fiamberti's approach was the key to creating a cheap and effective lobotomy, one that didn't require an operating room. But Freeman wouldn't inject alcohol into the brain. As Moniz discovered 10 years ago, this technique destroyed too much tissue. Instead, Freeman searched for a tool versatile enough to penetrate the bone of the eye socket and cut tissue with precision. Freeman tested a variety of tools on cadavers. But most medical instruments, like spinal puncture needles, bent or broke during use. He was stumped until he rummaged through his kitchen drawers, stumbling upon a Uline brand ice pick. The pick was strong enough to puncture the bone of the eye socket and slender enough to slice the brain's neural connections. It was the instrument that would define Freeman's career. Freeman called this procedure the transorbital lobotomy, but it would be more commonly known as the ice pick lobotomy. In January 1946, Freeman used it on a live patient for the first time. Ellen Ionesco was a 29-year-old wife and mother who suffered from episodes of mania and depression. She had suicidal thoughts and was violent towards her husband and daughter. Ellen's condition wasn't considered severe enough by other doctors to warrant a prefrontal lobotomy, but her husband was desperate. They tried other treatments, but nothing proved effective. He approached Freeman for help, and Ellen, just as eager to be cured, agreed to the experimental procedure. Freeman didn't have an anesthesiologist to numb the pain. Instead, he had Ellen lie on the couch and restrained her limbs. He placed electrodes on her temples and shocked her twice to render her unconscious. Then, Freeman sterilized his ice pick and placed it at the inner corner of Ellen's right eye. He lined up the ice pick with her nose, then tapped it with the mallet. 
The point penetrated the thin bone of her eye socket and entered Ellen's brain. With one quick twist of the pick, Freeman severed Ellen's thalamus from her prefrontal cortex. The entire procedure took five minutes. When Ellen woke up, she was disoriented and had trouble walking. The ice pick left her eyes badly bruised, but there were no stitches or bandages required. Freeman followed up with Ellen a few weeks later. She said her suicidal thoughts and violent outbursts were gone, and she went on to lead a normal life, raising her daughter and working in her husband's jewelry store. Not only was Freeman's transorbital lobotomy a success, it cost a fraction of the time, money, and manpower of a prefrontal lobotomy. But Freeman couldn't tell anyone yet. He needed more proof of its efficacy. Over the next few months, Freeman performed the procedure secretly in his office. On his 10th lobotomy, Dr. Watts caught him in the act. Watts was horrified to find his partner hammering an ice pick into a patient's eye socket. And he was furious that Freeman conducted such a delicate procedure without a surgeon, nurse, or anesthesia. Watts threatened to quit their practice if Freeman didn't discontinue his work immediately. Freeman refused. The fallout ended their 10-year partnership, with Watts swearing he would never allow a transorbital lobotomy to be done at George Washington Hospital again. That didn't prove to be the case. Over the years, even Watts found value in the transorbital lobotomy. He performed the procedure 28 times himself during the 1950s. Watts inevitably admitted that the procedure wasn't as dangerous as he believed. Working alone, Freeman continued to refine transorbital lobotomy over the next decade. He no longer needed a surgeon to follow his instructions. In fact, anyone could be trained to perform an ice pick lobotomy just about anywhere. However, transorbital lobotomies had a unique set of problems. Sometimes the tip of the ice pick would break off inside a patient's skull. It wasn't enough to cause significant damage, but it caused infections. Additional surgery was required to retrieve the broken pieces of metal. This undermined transorbital lobotomy as a non-surgical alternative. So, in 1948, Freeman designed a new instrument to replace the ice pick. He called it the orbitoclast. The orbitoclast was shaped like an ice pick, but longer with a handle on the end. It was more durable, and it gave Freeman more leverage. Freeman sold the idea of the orbitoclast as a superior instrument. He claimed that with this tool, the transorbital lobotomy was a milder treatment. It could be useful for a variety of conditions, like mania and depression, things that didn't warrant a surgical lobotomy before. What the public didn't know was that the results of transorbital lobotomies varied. In many cases, it brought the same relief prefrontal lobotomy did. Namely, it dulled the symptoms of mental health conditions at the cost of the patient's emotions. People lost their ability to engage in social norms. They overate, overslept, and lost self-motivation. But Freeman only focused on the fact that they no longer suffered their symptoms. This was his barometer of success. 
Meanwhile, many patients were attracted to the ease of the procedure. A transorbital lobotomy was far less grueling than a prefrontal lobotomy. Instead of weeks in the hospital, patients returned home that day. Freeman assured them there was no shaved head, only a black eye that would heal quickly. One thing he didn't advertise was the crudeness of the procedure. It left some patients with seizure disorders. Some lost their lives on the operating table. Others died days or weeks later from internal bleeding. Still, the promise of a cure far outweighed the risks. Freeman's method was also significantly cheaper. In 1949, a transorbital lobotomy cost $25, equivalent to around $300 today, while a prefrontal lobotomy cost 12 times that, around $300 or $4,000 today. Despite some of the benefits, the transorbital lobotomy drew criticism from many in the medical field. In 1947, one of Freeman's peers, Yale physiologist John Fulton, wrote, What are these terrible things I hear about you doing lobotomies in your office with an ice pick? Why not use a shotgun? It would be quicker. These criticisms did nothing to discourage Freeman's practice. He was performing the procedure everywhere. He made house calls, went to jails. He even visited a roadside motel in Bethesda, Maryland during a police standoff. And if Freeman's lobotomy was a three-ring circus, nearly everyone wanted to be part of the show. Freeman spent his summers touring state hospitals all over the United States. His goal was to train surgeons, neurologists, nurses, and psychiatrists in the art of transorbital lobotomy. The hospital and asylum staff gathered around as Freeman demonstrated his lobotomy on real patients. Sometimes he placed orbital clasts in both of a patient's eyes at once just to get a rise out of the audience. On one occasion, he performed a carousel of 25 lobotomies in a single afternoon. His methods may have repulsed some, but the majority of hospitals adopted transorbital lobotomy as common treatment. By the 1950s, 30% of the psychosurgeries performed in the United States were transorbital lobotomies, and that percentage grew every year. However, across the Atlantic, a new movement in psychiatric treatment was taking shape, one that would mean the end of the lobotomy and Freeman's career. Coming up, we'll examine the rise of psychopharmaceuticals and the lobotomy's fall from grace. Now, back to the story. Dr. Walter J. Freeman's ice pick lobotomy had become synonymous with mental health treatment in America. By the end of the 1940s, he had taken his show on the road, offering the procedure at patients' homes, prisons, even motels. Meanwhile, in France, chemists had stumbled on a new drug with extraordinary properties, one that threatened Freeman's entire legacy. In 1951, Rhone Poulenc, a French pharmaceutical company, was looking for new anesthetics to be used during surgery. A drug called chlorpromazine was the first to show promising results. However, 
a French Navy surgeon named Henri Laborie noticed chlorpromazine had other effects. He found that in low doses, chlorpromazine also calmed and lowered a patient's body temperature. At the time, cooling the body was a common treatment for severe emotional distress. Asylum patients were sometimes restrained and submerged into tubs of ice-cold water for hours on end. When it was all over with, the patient appeared more calm. Laborie believed chlorpromazine could provide an easier and more humane way to achieve the same results. In 1952, Laborie tested his theory on patients in a Paris military hospital. His first subject was a 24-year-old patient named Jacques who suffered from psychotic episodes. When Laborie injected Jacques with chlorpromazine, it didn't just lower his body temperature. It seemed to wipe away his psychosis entirely. Chlorpromazine works as a neurotransmitter antagonist. Neurotransmitters are chemicals released from one neuron to another. In order to get there, they travel across things called synapses. Think of a synapse like a street between two office buildings. Neurotransmitters are cars driving from one location to another. The neuron receptors are the spaces in the parking lot. There are many types of neurotransmitters with unique functions, like different types of vehicles have different uses. The chemical makeup of chlorpromazine is similar to a neurotransmitter called dopamine. So when someone takes chlorpromazine, it fills up the parking lot that dopamine is supposed to take. This dampens or decreases communication between neurons. It's theorized that conditions like schizophrenia and bipolar disorder are caused by too much dopamine being released by neurons. So chlorpromazine prevents the excess dopamine from finding receptors. Although the effects only lasted a few hours, doctors believed a constant supply of chlorpromazine could allow patients like Jacques to resume an ordinary life outside the asylum. Thus, the psychopharmacology industry was born. In 1954, the FDA approved chlorpromazine for use in the United States under the name Thorazine. It was marketed as a chemical lobotomy and provided all the benefits without the controversy. The drug was cheaper and more versatile than surgery, and psychiatric facilities quickly adopted it. If side effects became too much for the patient, their dosage could be easily adjusted. By the end of 1954, two million patients were prescribed chlorpromazine. Each day, hospitals ordered more doses of antipsychotics and made fewer calls to lobotomists like Walter J. Freeman. Freeman believed that psychopharmaceuticals were a passing fad. Thorazine had significant side effects, such as restlessness, muscle rigidity, and uncontrollable tremors. He felt it was only a matter of time before people returned to psychosurgery. Unfortunately for him, that day never came. Though Freeman had built relationships with existing patients, he was unable to garner new clients. Opportunities dried up in Washington, D.C., so he tried his luck on the West Coast. In 1954, he and his family moved to Los Altos, California to start fresh. Desperate for new patients, 
Freeman's criteria for administering lobotomies became more flexible. One of the most famous patients was a 12-year-old boy named Howard Dully. Howard's stepmother, Lou, approached Freeman asking for help with her defiant and ill-behaved son. It's unclear what condition Freeman diagnosed Howard with, but he advised the Dullies that a lobotomy would make their young boy more agreeable. And in December of 1960, Howard received a transorbital lobotomy. Meanwhile, public opinion of the lobotomy soured. In 1958, Tennessee Williams' play, Suddenly Last Summer, debuted on Broadway. It depicted the procedure as a barbaric method targeting young patients. The Bell Jar and One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest, both published in 1962, also portrayed lobotomy as stripping away one's vitality and independent thought. The tides had changed. Even physicians wondered why anyone would recommend a lobotomy when Thorazine was so effective. Still, there were a few patients who remained loyal to Freeman and trusted his methods. In fact, the lobotomy's greatest asset may have been Freeman's personality. His wit, personality, and intelligence won his patients' trust. He maintained relationships with some of them for decades. In 1961, Freeman was giving a lecture on the lobotomy in San Francisco when the crowd grew hostile towards him. Freeman became so frustrated, he overturned a box of 500 Christmas cards he'd received from patients and shouted, how many Christmas cards did you get from your patients? Needless to say, this little outburst didn't help his situation. In 1967, Freeman performed his final procedure at Herrick Memorial Hospital in Berkeley, California. His patient, Helen Mortensen, also happened to be one of his first ever patients back in 1946. Over the years, they'd kept in touch, and whenever Helen's symptoms returned, she'd see Dr. Freeman for a tune-up. It worked better for her than Thoracene had. As usual, Freeman shocked Helen into unconsciousness before angling the orbitoclast at the corner of her eye. He raised his mallet and struck. But this time, Freeman's orbitoclast cut too deep into Helen's frontal lobe. Her brain began to bleed. Three days later, Helen died of a brain hemorrhage. The Herrick Hospital Administration was furious and pulled Freeman's credentials. He never performed another lobotomy again. Freeman spent the rest of his days following up with old patients. His goal was to gather irrefutable evidence that lobotomy did, in fact, help people. It was his final attempt to salvage his legacy. Many patients had returned to their families or pursued careers. But others, like Howard Dully, felt that Freeman's lobotomy had taken something from them broken them in some way. As the public gradually learned about the true cost of the lobotomy, they realized they'd been sold a lie. Freeman didn't cure his patients. He hid their symptoms from the world and from the patients themselves. The only person who couldn't see the truth was Freeman. He was consumed by the mythos he built around himself. Despite his ego, he truly believed he'd spent the last 20 years helping the patients he cared about. 
Dr. Walter J. Freeman II died from complications of colon cancer surgery in 1972. He went to the grave adamant that the lobotomy was the most effective psychiatric treatment known to man. The controversy over the lobotomy outlived Freeman and Moniz. In 2005, Christine Johnson began a petition to revoke Moniz's 1949 Nobel Prize. Her grandmother, Beulah, suffered from hallucinations and depression long after her lobotomy in 1952. The procedure only destroyed her ability to make emotional connections. Mrs. Johnson argued that had Moniz not won the Nobel Prize in 1949, it may have saved her family from heartbreak. She claimed that the foundation had endorsed a procedure which caused untold harm to thousands around the world. In 2005, the Nobel Foundation responded, saying that they didn't revoke prizes. Freeman's biographer Jack L. High believes that despite the harm done by the lobotomy, its intentions were good. Revoking the prize would be stating Moniz did something wrong. In reality, his intentions were altruistic. The lobotomy was once envisioned as a way to free millions suffering from mental health conditions. Now, the procedure seems barbaric, but in its time, it was an act of mercy, and in some cases, it still is. The end of the lobotomy didn't mean the end of psychosurgery. In rare cases, physicians still turn to surgical treatments for mental health conditions today. For patients with severe drug-resistant epilepsy, cutting away portions of the temporal lobe can provide relief from their seizures. This was the same area Gottlieb Burkhardt targeted in his patients back in 1888. However, modern methods are far more precise than Burkhardt's. Another procedure, bilateral cingulotomy, is used as a last resort in treating obsessive-compulsive disorder, bipolar disorder, and even chronic pain disorders. Similar to the lobotomy, a cingulotomy targets the limbic system. In this case, the cingulate gyrus is destroyed, which regulates pain and habit formation. Doctors believe surgically altering this area relieves repetitive compulsions. Although lobotomies are no longer practiced, it's difficult to write Moniz and Freeman off as monsters. In fact, there are many medical practices performed today that may one day be considered outdated and barbaric. Take, for example, chemotherapy. Chemotherapy is the leading treatment for most cancers and has proved helpful in treating bone marrow diseases and immune system disorders. But it can come at a great cost to the patient. Some experience a multitude of symptoms, such as pain, nausea, and cellular damage. Chemotherapy can even, in rare cases, cause mutations that eventually turn into other cancers years after a patient has finished treatment. Chemo is dangerous, but its supporters argue it's not as dangerous as leaving the primary cancer untreated. This is why Dr. Baron H. Lerner, a professor of medical history at Columbia University, believes it may one day be ostracized. It's not the perfect answer, but it's perhaps the best solution at this point in time. Though society has moved past lobotomy's crude methods, we have not solved the underlying problem, treatment of mental health conditions. <laughs>
Of the 20 million worldwide who suffer from schizophrenia, only 31% receive effective treatment. 45 million live with bipolar disorder, and 264 million people battle depression globally. And those numbers are growing. Patients often can't afford expensive, lifelong drug regimens. And in developing countries, it can be impossible to get drugs in the first place. Nonetheless, psychopharmaceuticals are now a $14 billion industry. But even their efficacy is being questioned. Some accuse psychiatrists of overprescribing drugs like antidepressants because they're profitable, not because they help. For all we know, the overprescription of psychiatric drugs will one day be considered a barbaric and ineffective solution, too. One that did nothing but increase profits for drug companies at the expense of people with mental health conditions. So before we judge the actions of Walter J. Freeman and Antonio Igas Moniz, we must first ask ourselves, are we doing any better? Thanks for listening to Medical Mysteries. For more information on the lobotomy, amongst the many sources we used, we found The Lobotomist by Jack L. High extremely helpful to our research. You can find all episodes of Medical Mysteries and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify. Not only does Spotify already have all of your favorite music, but now Spotify is making it easy for you to enjoy all of your favorite podcast originals like Medical Mysteries for free from your phone, desktop, or smart speaker. To stream Medical Mysteries on Spotify, just open the app and type Medical Mysteries in the search bar. And don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Parcast and Twitter at Parcast Network. We'll see you next time. Medical Mysteries was created by Max Cutler and is a Parcast Studios original. It is executive produced by Max Cutler, sound design by Dick Schroeder, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Carly Madden, and Travis Clark. This episode of Medical Mysteries was written by Evan McKay, with writing assistance by Ali Wicker, and stars Molly Brandenburg and Richard Rossner. Listeners, you don't want to miss Incredible Feats, the all-new Spotify original from Parcast. Host Dan Cummins free-falls straight into the weirdest, wildest achievements of all time. New episodes air every weekday. Search Incredible Feats and follow free on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. Podcasts.